Welcome to your weekly update on all things tax, The Tax Factor, from Blick Rothenberg. With Heather Self and Sean Randall. Welcome to The Tax Factor, the new weekly podcast series from Blick Rothenberg. Each week, members of our team look at the news and updates in the world of tax and provide an analysis of what it might mean for you or your business. I'm Heather Self, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by one of the industry's leading experts on stamp duty and property tax, Sean Randall. So it's no surprise that we're going to talk mainly about property this week. Sean, welcome to The Tax Factor. Hi, Heather. Thank you. Before we start, I thought I'd just mention that this week we got the statistics out from HMRC on how much tax they collected in the month of July. They publish these stats every month, and it's quite interesting just to see how the tax receipts go up and down. What's really noticeable this month is just how much receipts from income tax have gone up. They've gone up by something like 19%, even though wages have only gone up by about half of that. And I think that really shows that this freezing of all the tax bans is flowing through into people paying more tax, even even if they're not noticing it. Corporation tax is also up 19% in the last 12 months, although I think that's partly companies starting to recover from the pandemic. Surprisingly, the only tax where takings are decreasing is stamp duty land tax. And we're guessing that that's due to increasing mortgage rates, causing property transactions to decline. But as I said, I'm not the expert in that topic. Sean, what do you think about stamp duty takings this month? Well, I think it's obvious that with interest rates going up and more pressure on on buyers funding transactions, that receipts will go down. It also has an effect in terms of asking prices going down. So there's a double whammy, perhaps, of fewer transactions, average highest prices going down and less affordability. So I think it's inevitable that there will be a correction or that that it's started to, albeit we're comparing some very high levels of stamp duty land tax receipts over the last couple of years. Last week on the podcast, Rob and Nimesh mentioned briefly a recent stamp duty land tax case. I think it was the Gibson case. Is that one that you could perhaps comment on in a bit more detail, Sean? I mean, it's not the most significant case over the last two or three years. It's one of many. It's on two subjects which are very topical and which affect residential transactions in particular, that is mixed-use transactions and multiple dwellings relief. And this case had both of those. It's a bit of a salutary tale, uh, or lesson rather. My colleague Rob Goodley, I think, correctly summarised the case. It concerned a fairly common type of property, which is a former agricultural building or farm building with a paddock. I think it was two acres. And there was some activity, both historically and recently, in terms of grazing, albeit the grazing was limited, I think, to two rounds a year in the summertime and springtime only. And the the appellant took advice from a big four firm regarding stamp duty land tax. I'm not quite sure, obviously, what the advice was. And they, the appellant, that is, tried to argue successfully that what he had bought, purchased was some type of residential property along with an element of non-residential property, whether that was an office building or whether it was uh, the grazing land. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given uh, a number of cases where on similar facts, appellants have also been unsuccessful, the appellant was unsuccessful in making that argument. And uh, I don't think it was necessarily destined to fail. There were arguments which made the classification of mixed use reasonable, but uh, I think the appellant failed possibly to understand the consequences of that classification failing. So in trying to uh, save something like £80,000 of stamp duty, he's been hit with roughly £15,000 of interest and has failed to fall back on almost a certain 
I would say, tax relief for 50,000. So he's 65,000 pounds worse off for having tried to save 80,000 pounds. Are you seeing now, Sean, a lot of people getting it wrong on these big residential property transactions? I mean, having just moved house myself a couple of months ago, stamp duty is quite a significant cost in the overall scheme of things. It really is. And that's partly driven by the fact that, you know, over successive, you know, budgets and, and finance acts, we've had successive increases in uh, rates for stamp duty land tax on residential transactions, where there's been virtually no increases on non-residential mixed transactions. We've almost reached a point where stamp duty land tax is equal to VAT at 17%, albeit on a very few, uh, very few transactions, would you ever reach that type of effective rate? But nevertheless, the top rate is 17%, theoretically. So are you seeing people getting it wrong a lot of the time? And what is that leading then to the, these claims firms coming in? Yeah, I mean, I've got to say at the outset that I'm super sympathetic to conveyances. I mean, if I find this subject sometimes challenging, quite often challenging, in fact, then I really don't understand how non-tax experts like conveyances are expected, albeit reasonably expected, to try to handle stamp duty land tax. So I am really sympathetic to the position that conveyances find themselves in. This subject is dynamic. It changes with regard to budgets and case law and changes in guidance. It's sensitive to you know, the context and the scheme of the legislation and how it's developed and the purpose of the legislation. So it's really complex stuff. And uh, that has led to errors, whether people paying too less, too little tax or too much tax, it works both ways. And yes, undeniably, it's led to a really active, burgeoning and increasing reclaim industry for stamp duty land tax. And how good are these reclaim firms? And I know on other areas like income tax or corporation tax research and development claims, I'm very sceptical of some of these firms who claim to be able to wave a magic wand and they, they seem to, to run away when the trouble hits. Yeah, I, I think that's right. In many cases, some of the arguments are backed by an opinion from a tax barrister. And if that's right, I would always suggest looking at the instructions to counsel and the opinion from counsel, because any opinion from a tax barrister is going to be qualified. It's going to be subject to caveats and you know qualifications. So it's wrong to say that something's been blessed by counsel, that it's inevitably going to be correct and uh, super robust. Well, you have to remember that when, when cases go to court, 50% of barristers lose. Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, this is um, this is all subjective, and even counsel are only expressing an opinion, and even HMRC's view is only their opinion. So we only really understand actually what the law says and means once we get to the courts, and courts really above the first tier tribunal. And are you seeing some firms pushing arguments that you really think they're onto a loser? Yeah, sadly, I do, particularly in residential property transactions, some of the arguments are really unsustainable. And it seems that some arguments are being sold without any kind of warning that they've been the subject of case law. And there have been a couple of occasions when the first tier tribunal has unequivocally dismissed an argument, but because that only affects the parties to the appeal, it doesn't create any kind of precedent for other transactions. That means that the reclaim firm or you know the boutique can continue to sell that argument to unsuspecting you know members of the public yeah it's a really important point that generally that you're know, the first tier tribunal does not set the precedent it makes it's the key decision maker on fact but appeals from there can go on points of law but not many of these cases do get appealed do they presumably the amounts at stake are just not worth it in most residential transactions 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. But also I, I'm a bit suspicious. And I think that particularly boutiques sponsor SDLT appeals to the first tier tribunal, recognizing that it's not in their interests to further appeal that decision, even if they can, because that would create, if they're unsuccessful, a binding decision, which would affect their ability to sell arguments to other people. So I think what you're saying there is be very careful if somebody comes along claiming to be able to save lots of money with no risk. There's usually either a lot of risk or not as much money as you hoped. What, what sort of things can people do to avoid becoming victims of these aggressive sales techniques? Yeah, look, I mean, it's obvious, really, you know, uh, get a second opinion, uh, do some diligence on the firm that's making this argument. If they say that it's blessed by a council, we'll, you know, try to see in full the instructions to council, which are really important, as well as the opinion that's been signed by council. And it also really understand whether someone is selling you a contingent fee type of piece of advice, which means that it's going to be self-serving, or whether, in fact, this is a kind of dispassionate piece of advice with no no, uh, no self-interest in the outcome. All good points there. I have to say the, the funniest bit of aggressive stamp duty selling I saw was when I was working for HMRC and my colleague sitting at the desk opposite me was buying a flat and the estate agent tried to sell him some very dodgy stamp duty planning. When he stopped laughing, I think he passed them on to his experts in that part of HMRC. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally, as they say, uh, the other topic we just wanted to touch on if we've got time is um, what impact AI, artificial intelligence might have on the market, both on taxpayers and non-taxpayers and also HMRC. If I perhaps start with HMRC, I mean, we've seen for close to 10 years now, they've got really very sophisticated in joining the, the dots on information that they've got. They have a system called Connect, which I think, Sean, you described it as MI6 level software, where if there are pieces of information out there on what somebody's doing on property transactions or something else, HMRC are pretty good at picking up that something's going on and starting an inquiry. So that's already happening. What about more generally in the market? Yeah, I absolutely echo that. And um, they understandably like commoditized uh, approaches. So they tend to group transactions by type and then pick a lead case and tack that lead case or, and, and, and let that determine the, the rest of the other cases which are affected. So large-scale commoditized approaches or issues are really topical. In terms of the potential impact of AI on the market, I can see, obviously, software being used more successfully, more efficiently in the market, whether it's by tax advisors or by members of the public. That's got, I mean, it's inevitable to some extent. But I think we are really far away from that. That might sound self-serving, but I think the subject, if SDLT is anything to go by, is too nuanced and too sensitive to subtle changes in facts for this to be a reliable tool, in my view. So if in doubt, always ask the expert. Sean, thank you very much for joining me on The Tax Factor. I'd like to encourage people to visit the Property Hub on the Blick Rothenberg website, where we've got lots of insights and articles focusing on the property sector. We release a new episode of The Tax Factor every Friday on all the major podcast platforms. Next week, I'll be here again and I'll be joined by Blick Rothenberg CEO Nimesh Shah. I'm Heather Self. Goodbye. That's all for this episode of The Tax Factor. Find all our previous episodes wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not try Brave Business, our podcast series for entrepreneurs. Find it wherever you get The Tax Factor or on the Blick Rothenberg website. The Tax Factor.